This is Len Hap from LeanPub, and in this Back Matter podcast episode, I'll be talking with Dan Holloway. Based in Oxford, Dan is a speaker, writer, performer, performer and mental health campaigner, a mind sports competitor and creative thinking world champion amongst his other activities and accomplishments, including a weekly self-publishing news column at selfpublishingadvice.org. You can find Dan's column at selfpublishingadvice.org slash author slash Dan Holloway, and you can follow him on Twitter at Agniska's Shoes. Um, this, you'll see the text and the transcription for this. Um, read his posts on Medium at Dan Holloway 1, and check out his website at roganterrobang.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about Dan's career, a variety of his interests, and as someone who writes about it every week, we're going to pick Dan's brain about his opinions about the general state of the self-publishing industry and the latest developments and controversies, perhaps, of interest to authors and experts in the book publishing industry. So thank you, Dan, for being on the Back Matter podcast. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people about themselves. Um, my little joke is I'm looking for their origin story. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your path, about uh, where you grew up and how you became interested in writing and in uh the publishing world generally oh that's that's really hard to do in a short it's a big question um i grew up in stroud which is it's sort of the hippie capital of the uk um and it's it's known for being the first place in the uk to have a non-cash economy um so it was absolutely full of really strange bookshops it's full of performance poets um and our house, when I was a kid, we just drowned in books, basically. So, so I grew up swimming in books. Um, I sort of always knew I wanted to be involved in books in some way. Um, the big event in our house every year was the publication of a new volume of Virginia Woolf's Diaries. So I, so I sort of grew up knowing books were special. Um, then I went away to college and sort of lost touch for about a decade, a decade and a half. Um, and then sort of got back into books, got back into writing just as the self-publishing thing was taking off. Um, I got into, it was an online Hannibal Lecter forum is how I actually got back into writing. Um, and then I ended up at an online writer's site in 2008, I think. Um, and that took me into self-publishing from there. It was sort of clear that I was a bit too awkward to work with a publisher, um, a bit too bloody-minded ever to, if I'm allowed to say that, um, ever to want to get involved with with sort of the, the industry as I saw it. Um, and I think they probably wouldn't want anything to do with me because I'm too awkward. Um, and so I just became outspoken about self-publishing and started self-publishing in 2009. Um, that's the very short version of it. And when you say you got into college, um, you went to Oxford. Um, I, I, I came to Oxford at age 17, and I'm now age 45, and I've been here ever since and never left. I wanted to ask you a question about that. Um, one thing, at, in particular, North American listeners might not be aware of is that when you're applying to Oxford as an undergraduate, you have to do an interview. Yes, um, and, and we actually have... Oh, sorry, to... we actually have... Yes, sorry. No, sorry, yeah, please, I just wanted to hear what you had to say about that experience, because I know it can be quite trying. And, you know, especially at that age, you know, facing that with your family, knowing you're there and all that kind of background, it's a, a very big event. It's it's really interesting. And, and we actually have the students up for interviews. They came up today. So for the next two weeks, Oxford will be full of 17, 16 year olds here to have their interviews. Um what I remember most was was being late. Um, I didn't know where I was going, so I arrived out of breath and bright red. Um, I was sat down in a chair, and the first thing they said to me was, when you woke up this morning, how did you know you were the same person who went to bed last night? <laughs> and I thought, wow, um, is that what I've got to expect here? Um, and I guess I, I that sort of clicked with me straight away. I loved somewhere where it was... There was no small talk. There was no nonsense. You just got straight down to the big questions. Um, and so the sort of thinking on your feet and the thinking of total weird things um, and being able to be as creative as you wanted and as weird as you wanted, that, that really appealed. Um, and it's still what appeals to me most. Um, 
back in those days, we didn't actually have to have any qualifications to come to Oxford. You got these sort of unconditional offers. If they, if the interview went well, they just give you an offer and say come, um, which, which has changed a lot since then. Now you need straight A's, um, so it, it's less open to that extent. But it's still very much if if you have a an off kilter way of looking at the world, it's a great place to to find like minded people. And at what college did you? Uh, I was. I was at Christchurch as an undergraduate, which is now best known as Harry Potter College, of course, because where we had dinner every day is now the Hogwarts Hall um, on the films. Um, so, yeah, I just I remember once it never seemed like a big deal because we were we were so used to it. But obviously it's it's really famous. So it's slightly it's sort of a slight weird feeling. Um, I remember going into the cathedral one day just sort of dressed in a Hawaiian shirt and Bermuda shorts because that was what I thought you did. And there were all these tourists there looking at me really, really strange, like, what the hell are you doing? Um, but, yeah, no, it was a really, really interesting experience, Christchurch. Yeah, um, I uh, I wrote my DPhil at Balliol um, in English literature, so I spent a few years in Oxford <laughs> myself. And I was back uh, a little while ago for a friend's wedding um, which was actually in the divinity schools, um, which was fascinating oh, nice. experience. Yeah. And, um, and things had changed since my time. Um, I matriculated in 2001 and I remember the lineups for Christchurch with tourists were kind of bad enough um, <laughs> when I was there, but it's gone crazy since, since you, Harry you, Potter. You, yeah. You can't move in Oxford and every shop has Harry Potter merchandise in the windows. It's, it's extraordinary. Um, yeah, yeah. You can't you can't walk on the pavements. Um, and one of uh, one thing I wanted to talk to you about as well, just you know, going down memory lane. Um, one thing that I think a lot of people, particularly in North America, might might also not be aware of is that, um, generally speaking, at Oxford, when you do an undergraduate degree, um, you have all your exams at the end. Um, yeah, and it's a it's a three year degree generally for an undergraduate degree. Um, and that's that's an extraordinary experience. Speaking of um, surprise tourists, one of the conventions that happens after you finish your exams is your friends. When you come out, your friends sort of shower you in glitter and you get drunk. Yeah. Um, and I remember seeing a kid in his and he wear a gown as well. Um, and I remember seeing a student slumped over in a bench in the middle of a busy tourist street with a uh, you know grossness warning. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> puddle of vomit beneath him, um, completely passed out, covered in glitter and goo. Uh, and there were these tourists just looking at him like, this is not what we expected um, to see here. <laughs> um, and I wanted to just generally ask you, because you got a, I know from LinkedIn, you got a first, which is the, you know, the, one of the highest grades you can get. And that's, you know, something that colleges publish proudly. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience. What did you do to prepare? Because I know that's a big deal um wow uh i did go through that phase of being that student slumped on that bench um in my second year i i did a lot of mind maps so that was when i i learned mind mapping um i guess it was back in 92 so that that was when mind mapping was it was quite new um so that's how i learned a lot of my stuff i also basically learned that you if you work really hard in your first year you don't have to work that hard after that if you play, if you play catch up and try and cram everything at the last minute because the courses in oxford you you have you sit about eight to ten different papers and they they seem really unconnected so you'll have we had a paper on early church history we had a paper on the philosophy of mind and they they just seem like they've got nothing to do with each other but if you do if you do all the work really early on then you find that over the next year, everything beds in and your brain just makes these unconscious connections between things. Um, whereas if you learn everything at the last minute, so if you have your parties early, then it's much harder to do that. So you, you are learning literally, you're learning pieces of fact. Whereas if you start early and learn everything, then what happens? You can spend the last two years taking it fairly easy because your brain is doing the, the real work subconsciously. Um, and I guess that's really where I learned about creativity and that the way you form connections um, and you form connections by having lots of information in your head that you put there and then you just let your brain do its own thing and it will find it. So so 
learn early and um, yeah, use mind maps to help you make connections. Um, I've got some a question or two about creativity that I'd like to ask you in a few minutes. Um, but before that, one thing I discovered uh, when I was um, researching for this interview in advance was that you're, as I mentioned in the introduction, you're a mental health campaigner. Um, and in particular, you've worked with, amongst other groups, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, specifically yeah. on the question of debt and mental health. And I yeah. had never, I confess to have never thought about connecting those two things before, um, other than, other than you know, the sort of standard anxiety one might have about um, paying yeah. one's debts. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your work on that issue. Yes, um, that started because I, I wrote a blog about having bipolar disorder. And one of the things with, with bipolar disorder is you can go on these binge spending sprees. Um, so I got into bad debt problems, having gone on these binge spending degrees. One of the th ways it manifested itself because I was studying theology was I convinced myself that I needed 23 Bibles so, because I had to have every translation that had ever been made. Um, so I got into all sorts of debt and I blogged about that and the Royal College found my blog. Um, and yes, the, it's, it's a two-way relation between debt and mental health, which makes it such a dangerous thing. Um, either depression or bipolar can lead to these, these sort of either comfort spending or binge spending issues. You can you can not open letters, you can not pay your debts because you can't face up to them. And that can lead to all sorts of debt problem and debt problem in turn can lead to mental health problems. So it's a really insidious feedback loop that you get into. Um, so one of the things I was instrumental in doing, I was on the steering group that set up it probably doesn't mean much, um, but it's something called the Debt and Mental Health Evidence Form, which is if you get into trouble with your creditors, it's a form which you go to your GP to fill out and it will help them to see the effects that mental health has on your on your capacity to repay debt and your financial behaviour, um, for example. So it's it's made a huge difference to, to people and to helping the finance industry understand the impact of mental health. Um, on finances. And um, one thing, I remember moving to London in 1999, um, and there were a lot of student protests happening at the time about the introduction of tuition. Um, yes. And, and I remember being very surprised um, uh, because, you know, in North America, we take tuition payment for granted. I'm, I'm based in Canada, so the situation isn't as bad as it, as it is in the United States but it can still be pretty bad. And, you know, I remember talking to a coworker who had recently graduated and he um, was uh, quite dismayed by his 5,000 pounds of debt. Um, and I was at the same time, sorry for him and quite surprised that that was considered to be a shocking amount of debt. Um, and then I was, you know, glad to be in a place where that was a shocking amount of debt, but that's changed a lot. That has changed. Yeah. Last 20 years. Um, and I was wondering, since you're, you're based in Oxford, has, have you seen, have you noticed an effect on student life? Because I remember undergraduates um, there, you have to choose at the beginning what you're going to study, and you study one subject. And so that choice can, was always difficult. But when you're now facing debt that you wouldn't have been facing in the past, uh, that's probably a, an even more difficult prospect. Have you noticed that a change in the atmosphere? Um, there is certainly the I think there are people making choices because they want to go into a career where they're going to be able to repay their their student debts and and that and obviously that's not necessarily a good thing because you're you're learning for a financial reason rather than for an academic or an intellectual reason and that that doesn't help the creative atmosphere in the country and the innovative atmosphere it's it's this this idea that everything has a financial value and nothing has a creative value isn't isn't necessarily healthy um places a lot more anxiety on students around results because they know they have to get a certain grade to get a certain career. Um, it has changed the way the whole interface between students and teachers works. Um, they're much more aware that they are paying a set fee and they expect a set almost service. Um, so it's become almost like a, a customer, a, a customer and shopkeeper atmosphere rather than this sort of pedagogic 
learning institution. I mean, it, it's still a great place to be and there are still amazing things happening, but it, it has definitely affected the atmosphere. Yeah, that um, that's, I mean, a very interesting subject in itself. My brother is a professor and um, the administration at his university on forums started referring to students as customers. Um, yeah. You know, I think, and he, he would, when he was filling these forms out, he would do his little protest and cross them out <laughs> customers and write in students for what it was worth. Um, but the trans, there are many things that have happened in, you know, conventional university life in the West in the last, let's say 50 years that have been very transformative. But one of them is the transformation of that relationship into kind of transactional in a way that it wasn't in the past. Yeah. It's really troubling. Um, yeah. At the same time, uh, universities have become these sort of um, self-aware hubs for innovation. Um, yes. And you had a recent um, success where you won the Oxford University Humanities Innovation Challenge for a creative training course tool called, and I hope I pronounced yeah. it correctly, Mycelium. <laughs> um, That's, that is correct, yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, about how, how you found out about the challenge and then what Mycelium is? Yes. Um, as you probably gather already, I had, I had a breakdown at the end of my student life and I never completed my doctorate. Um, so I've ended up as an administrator here. Um, and as an administrator here, you are very much shut out from a lot of the academic things. It's, it's like you sign this contract and the contract says, no, you do not have a brain. Um, so whatever you've done, it, do, it doesn't matter. Um, and part of my job is to send out circulars to our academics. And one of the circulars that landed on my desk um, was about an innovation challenge with a with a prize of some seed funding. Um, it looked interesting and I had a look through the rules and there's nothing that stopped me as an administrator entering. So I thought I might as well enter and give it a shot. Um, so I did and I entered and there were 14 academics who'd also entered. Um, and I ended up winning for some reason, which, which was really great. Um, and that has sort of kick-started what I've been wanting to do all along and get which is getting back into some kind of academic but impact related work um it's a very simple tool it's it's based on my research which as a theologian was into early modern thought systems um in particular memory palaces and memory wheels the, the kind of thing that you see on Hannibal um or Sherlock and also my friends in the mind sports world's research into um, the neuroimaging of memory athletes, the neuroscience of jazz improvisation and, and battle rap. Um, and it's it's a way of, of basically reshaping your mind so that you are more primed to be innovative. So it's growing the, like we talked about earlier, it's, it's growing these association um, of database in your head and at the same time it's it's a way of helping you to be less self-judgmental so that you are more e you, you more easily form connections because the main thing that stops us forming connections is that we we're worried about looking an idiot basically um and that that's never a good thing um so basically the way creativity in general is scored is the more original your idea the more it's worth um, and by putting that in the form of a game, you can actually reward outrageous behavior and you're rewarding outlandishness. Um, and that's encouraging you just to, to be more ridiculous. And the more you're encouraged to be more ridiculous, the more naturally it will come. And the more easy you will find it to connect up the things that you might not have thought about connecting up and do, I guess, what you would call thinking outside the box. So you're more likely to find the innovative solutions to wicked problems um, and the kind of the kind of challenges that we need to face up to in the in the 21st century. Um, so yeah, th that's a very grandiose way of saying it's a card game that asks you questions like, after the zombie apocalypse, would you choose to save an oil well or a violin? <laughs> so it's, a, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun card game with lots of research behind it. <laughs> and you, you get five minutes to come up with as many answers as you can. Um, uh, you mentioned a memory wheel. Um, I, I'd heard of memory palaces, um, partly from, uh, you know, it, it's a ancient rhetorical device um, uh, yes. for memorizing speeches um, where you associate, you, you sort of construct a building in your head and then you, a subject is associated with each room that you walk through um, as I understand it. Um, but what's a memory wheel? Yes. 
Uh, it's a similar principle. It's the idea again is that you associate ideas with with fixed objects, um, but that also it, by placing these fixed objects instead of in rooms but in concentric circles, um, it's a way of helping you to to connect again to make connections. Um, and it was also associated, as were the memory palaces with with um, hermetic religions. Um, and the, the Kabbalah and this slightly sort of occult things. So you would have things like the orders of archangels um, and astrological symbols, um, because these are all things that are very familiar in the intellectual landscape of medieval Europe. Um, and you would associate your ideas with these things. And then, but because they were circles, you'd almost be able to spin the wheel, like Wheel of Fortune and, and make new connections. Um, and the idea was that by making these connections, you're, you're your soul would be lifted up to some sort of spiritual plane. Um, but actually what it did was, was form a really, it's a really great mechanism for, for making new connections. Um, it didn't work so well at the time because, because they were using astrological symbols um, basically to help them memorize things, they ended up getting burnt at the stake a lot um, because it was seen as a really bad thing. So it was actually quite dangerous to be a, a memory athlete in the Middle Ages. Oh, that's really fascinating. I had no idea um, about that that aspect of, uh, you know, hermetic and sort of cavalarian life. Um, and I suppose in particular, if things need to be secret and not written down, uh, yeah, memorizing them and keeping them invisible um, would be a very yeah. important thing. Um, yeah. Speaking of invisible things, I suppose, uh, mind sports. Um, uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and about, for example, um, you know, your experience competing, um, for example, as the creative thinking world champion? Yes, the, the, the mind sport, I mean, mind sports have always been with us with things like chess um, and so on. And it goes back to the, the Greek days. And, and obviously Go is a, one of the oldest games in the world. Um, and I'm sure we'll come on to talk about AI later because obviously Go and AI are been in the news a lot this year um but mind sports as, as a big competitive movement um sort of started in, in 1997 was the first mind sports olympiad um which was held in london for people from all over the world could come and take part in events like um intelligence creative thinking chess go um speed reading um all that kind of thing and it was all it was all in one umbrella movement um, and I was lucky enough to go along for the first the first year back in 1997, um, just sort of on a whim to see what it was like. And I ended up winning the bronze medal in the creative thinking and thought, oh, that I really enjoyed it. Um, so I went back for a few years. I won the World Intelligence Championships in 2000, um, which was really interesting. Um, had a bit of a break after my health took a turn for the worse, but came back to it in 2016. Um, and along and, and took part in the creative thinking um, and ended up winning that and then came back and won again this year and won the speed reading championships as well, which was which was really fun. Um, but it's, it's a really good way of keeping your mind fresh and of it's basically pushing it, it's I don't I'm sure you're aware of the theories about deep practice that are really trendy at the moment. Um, I confess I'm not. This idea that. A deep, deep practice is the it's the idea that you you learn best when you're at the edge of your capability and you're always learning something new and learning something you're not quite good at yet um, rather than just going over the things that you are good at until you're flawless at them so it's it's sort of the idea that you practice driving at 90 miles an hour if you want to be really good at driving 50 miles an hour um, because although you might struggle at the higher limit it it makes all the connections faster in your brain so that you're better at the lower level um, and I found competing at mind sports is a really good way of making sure that you never get into a mental comfort zone, um, but you're always out of your out of what you're happy with doing, so that when you come back into something that, that's that's more straightforward, you do it much better. Um, and it, it's it sort of fits in with with things like Josh Kaufman's um, twenty hour challenge. You know, this idea that you can get really good at anything by spending twenty hours of really deep, concentrated practice doing it. Um, it's, a, it's a great TED talk of Josh Kaufman's. 
I'll find a I'll find a link to it and put it in the transcription of this interview. Cool. Thanks for that. Um, I have a specific question, I suppose, which is what, what, for example, with the creativity competition, what particular form does it take? I mean, are you standing in front of a group of people and then asked questions which you answer verbally, or are you sitting at a desk? I mean, I've got you are, you are, okay. you are sitting at a desk. Um, you, there are four rounds, um, and you get asked really strange questions, and you get 20 minutes to answer them. So for one round, for example, uh, you get drawings from the Swedish patent office at the sort of the turn of the 19th century, um, 19th, 20th century. And you get these drawings and you get all the words stripped out of them and you have to come up with outlandish ideas for what they might be drawings for. Um, you, the answer isn't to get it. The object isn't to get it right. It's just to come up with really weird things that it might have been. Um, and last year, one of the drawings was for it was. <clears throat> It was something that you put on your arm so that you could wipe your nose while skiing, for example. So you get, you'd never come up with that in a million years. Um, but you can come up with some really interesting things it might be. So another one, he took five things he'd heard in the street that week and we had to connect them into a story. And you could make any story you wanted based around these five quotations. So it's, it's this sort of odd scenario thinking. And you have to come up with as many outrageous ideas as you possibly can. That sounds... Um... It's it's sort of similar to. It's a lot of fun, yes, um, but really challenging if, if you're not used to thinking in that sort of way. Um, switching gears slightly, um, you're an advocate for the Alliance of Independent Authors, which is behind the Self Publishing Advice Center website, yes. where you publish your column. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the Alliance of Independent Authors does. You spoke a little bit before about you know your own. Uh, personality um, that perhaps finds a home in places with independent in its in their name. Yes, so the alliance is it's only been going since 2012, but it's already sort of grown into this several thousand author strong movement um, under the the tutelage of Honor Ross, who is a wonderful force for nature. Um, it's mainly it's it's an advocacy group for self-publishers um, to enable indie voices to be heard in the wider community, um, to enable indie concerns to become part of the main, the agenda of the conference landscape and so on, um, so that we're not just stuck in a back room. Um, as well as a lot of practical advice. Um, and we've got people like Mark Dawson and Joanna Penn who are associated with us big in the in the self-publishing world. Um, we do a lot of campaigning, for example, on getting competitions and, and prizes to accept indie authors, um, on getting indie books into bookstores, into libraries, um, just getting getting the indie movement taken more, taken more seriously, um, which it, it is now being obviously done, but still at events like London Book Fair, Frankfurt Book Fair, Book Expo, there's a tendency for us to be put in the back room a little bit. We're um, thoroughly heard, um, and when we're heard, it's we're heard because of our sales rather than because of some of the more innovative things that we're doing. Um, so it's 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 basically trying to push a more a more do-it-yourself. Um, I mean, we use the word entrepreneurial a lot. It's this just sort of taking back control. Um, so, so we're advocating for the, for the process, but we're also advocating for our voice to be heard. Um, and we're advocating for just a more forward-looking approach to literary world in general, um, because publishing is, is somewhat retrograde. Speaking of publishers being retrograde, they do, they do sometimes try and dip their toes in, into computers. Um, yes. And um, there were a couple of recent things that you've written about and other people have written about that happened in the self-publishing services world related to publishers trying to do things. And one was the announced failure of something called Type and Tell, um, which was providing yes. author services and was owned by the media company Bonnier. Um, and yeah. another was the, the announced closure of something called Pronoun, yeah. um, an ebook distribution service that had been acquired by the publishing giant Macmillan just a yeah. year and a half or so ago. And in both instances, this was, you know, big publishers trying to do just something and both failed relatively quickly. Although, although 
pronoun itself had a long history, but it failed yeah. relatively quickly after being acquired by Macmillan. Um, and I was wondering yeah. if, if in particular, if you could maybe talk a little bit about um, just generally speaking, why do you think it is that big publishers have such a hard time with the online? <laughs> um, I think in those cases, they were just impatient. I mean, I, I absolutely had no idea why Type and Tile closed because they, they launched at London Book Fair this year. Um, that was that was back in the spring, and they they were announcing their closure by November, and that that that's the sort of time cycle you just don't have. <laughs> you certainly don't have in tech if you've got a company the size of Bonnier behind you, because that it makes no sense at all. So I, I have no idea what was going on then. Um, I, th I think they they, I mean, if that was a genuine cycle of they thought they had tested it and it hadn't worked, then then I think the message that you get from that is that that they they don't understand the time cycles and the life cycles of of how the internet works, um, and what you need to do to build a customer base and how you how you would measure whether you are being successful, because in 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 the early stages it's it's really hard to tell when, when you're basically your numbers are flatlining. It's hard to tell whether you're making progress or not. Um, but there are ways, I guess, if you do some detailed cohort analysis, you can you can tell whether that flatline is actually it's a changing flatline or whether it's a flatlining flatline. Um, and my guess is that that they they either decided that there was something shiny somewhere else they wanted to move to, or they just weren't doing any analysis, which were was able to give them any measure of what they were doing right or doing wrong, or they just figured they, they didn't know how to improve, they didn't know how to A-B test um, to change what was happening. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's confusing to work out what was going on. Yeah, it's very um, interesting in particular with the book publishing industry where, um, you know, publishers will invest in books that can take years to write. Um, yeah. But then they invest in companies and give up so quickly. Um, yeah. Why do you think, it, it go, do you think that, I, I mean, I know it's hard to answer, but is it something about, is there, well, it go, it, sorry, yeah, please go ahead. It, I'd say, no, it makes, it makes sense with the, with the fact that they, they will tend not to give authors a second chance if your first book doesn't do well. And that, that shows that in a way they, they don't get the building on failure thing. Um, they don't get, they don't get iterative testing and they don't get improving by, by, changing things up and, and experimenting. Um, it's either succeed or fail. And if you succeed, then great. If you fail, then you don't get a second chance. Um, and that's certainly the case with their authors these days. Um, massive advances for your first book. If your first book doesn't, doesn't bring it in, then tough. Um, and that's where smaller publishers are obviously having a lot of success um, because they don't have that model. Um, and I think that that's that's what the problem is. That's probably switched over to their way they do online, and that just isn't how it works online. And if you want to uh, bag one of these giant advances um, for a first book, uh, how have things changed with respect to that in the last few years? I mean, you said you talked a little. You, you mentioned briefly. I think that you know indie publishing has become a little bit more respectable, and I think that there was a time. Uh, when if you were indie publishing, people feared, and perhaps in many cases rightly, that that would then disqualify you uh, if you approached uh, a big publisher for a big advance. Has that changed? Um, I think it's certainly, it's probably still true that if, if you indie publish and you don't sell, then you're, you're, that does disqualify you. If you indie publish and you sell, then, then you'll get snapped up. Um, if you want to be snapped up, which not everyone does, um, but if you indie publish and you, the numbers don't follow you, then then you probably aren't doing yourselves any favours. Um, I think the chances of getting a big advance if you're not a, a big name celebrity have probably increased a little bit. Um, most of the agents and publishers I talk to, they seem to be very into this sort of literary commercial crossover they talk about. Um, books like The Kite Runner. Um, the cellist of Sarajevo, and I guess in, in young adult, something like The Fault in Our Stars, this kind of book that, that is is on that sweet spot between literary and commercial, um, that has, through a lot of book clubs, I guess in the States through Oprah, in the UK through Richard and Judy, this is the kind of 
book that has been has been hyped and has done well from grassroots up. Um, so I think if you write that kind of book, there is an opportunity now to get this sort of big advances. Um, I mean, we, we've seen some classic failures, haven't we? There was, there was a, oh, it was Garth Risk Halberg, wasn't it? City on Fire that got an absolutely massive advance for that kind of book recently and then totally tanked. Um, so it's, it, we're, we're maybe at the, just going over the crest now, but I think, I think there is a chance for you to get a big advance if that's what you're after, if you, if you aren't a celebrity and you are writing that sort of in that sweet spot. Um, but I think if, if you indie publish and then you do well, then, then yes, publishers will, they basically spend half their life on the Amazon charts looking for the successes and, and will want to mop them up. Um, and people are getting more imaginative about how they how they approach that. So you get people who will sell, like Hugh Howey, will sell their, their paper rights and keep their e-rights. Um, One interesting thing um, that people talk about in the self-publishing world is the importance of, of data. Um, yeah. It's a big part of, of and not, not just the self-publishing world, but the publishing world as well. And I think that was one of Pronoun's um, claims about how it was going to fund itself. So for those listening, the story of Pronoun was essentially that it eventually morphed into something that where you could upload a text um, and it would then distribute it to various um, uh places where people could buy it and it would pass through all of the revenue from those books after the outlets take had been deducted from it. It would pass through everything it received to the author. Um, yeah. And uh, people wondered from the beginning, yep. how is this going <laughs> to work? And there was a fair amount of I told you so's uh, happening. Yeah. And, and these were all, by the way, not, not in a, uh, they were all kind of sad. I told you so. People yes. really wanted pronoun to work. Yeah. Um, and anyway, one of the claims it had made about how it was going to fund itself was through data, and that it would presumably sell this data both to self-publishing people who are interested in what they should be doing, and to publishers themselves. And I believe one subset of this concept of of how data can be useful is actually knowing what subject you should be writing about or what types of characters you should be having in your book, you know. So, for example, we know that if um, you have a character of this of this type, you know, undergoing this type of challenge, then people are more likely to read through to page 50 rather than yeah. abandoning the book at page 40. And so you're going to get a bigger cut of, you know, the subscription services revenues because they go by page reads. Just generally speaking on that, that particular subset of how data is important, do you believe, do you believe that, that that is something that authors and publishers should be focusing on? Uh, there are certainly a lot of stories about, and there, there's a lot of machine learning going into identifying the perfect narrative arc um, and comparing the successful books across different genres to find what the perfect narrative arc is. Um, I think publishers are interested in it. My experience of the indie world has been that most people laugh at it. Um, I wonder, though, if that might be a bit a bit premature, I think I think, I mean, you've got things like the bestseller experiment, for example, where where people have written a book from scratch with the intention of it being becoming a bestseller and then seeing if it happens, um, seeing if you can almost write to formula. Um, you had was it Atessa Moshveg who wrote, I've forgotten what it was called. Was it called Irene or Eileen? The thriller she wrote because she wanted she was a literary writer but she wanted to see if she could write a book by numbers and she ended up getting shortlisted for a lot of major awards as a result so I, I think people the people who want to publish by formula are going to be interested in it um the people who want to write lots of books and and shove them out quickly are going to be interested in it publishers are definitely going to be interested in it um my take is that it's a bit tail wagging the dog and that in general in writing once you've identified a trend the trend's gone and it's too late to write to it um and that it's much better to try and anticipate the next trend um i guess the more you can show what works across genres and across trends the more valuable the data will become so if you can if you can show that um historical sagas have the same points as vampire romance, have the same points as 
erotica have the same points as dystopian thrillers, then you've got something really useful because you've got something that will translate across trends. Um, whereas if you're looking at something that's very trend specific, I think the data probably isn't as useful as it might be because by the time you can analyze it, the market has moved on. You mentioned AI earlier, and in this context, um, I guess I'd like to ask your opinion about about that. I mean, if if we're sort of doing this kind of analysis of narratives and relating them to page, things as precise as page reads and even eye tracking and sales and yeah. you know, obviously sales and things like that. Um, do you think we're approaching a time and let's, let's make the horizon say 20 years when computers are going to be able to write bestsellers? Yeah. 20 years, of course they, they are. I think, I think it would be, I think, I think we'd have our heads in the sand to say that they weren't. I mean, the, the thing that Elon Musk always likes to point out is the way that the way the curve works is the way that if you're standing on the curve, you can never see the exponential growth um, because everything seems flat. But actually, if you if you zoom out just one order of magnitude, then you'll see that you are on something that is, is just zooming off. Um, and so even the tiniest progress that that books seem to be making and, and AIs can now write reasonable poetry. But, um, a lot of my poet friends would probably disagree with me, but but they they have made a lot of progress on writing poetry. They're not so good on writing novels. Um, but the fact that they have made any progress at all in this brief period says to me that within twenty years, of course, they're going to be able to write something that's equally as good as anything that a human could write today. Um, and I think it, it shows a lack of imagination to to think that they wouldn't be able to. And. Uh... What do you think that's going to mean for the book industry? Um, that's a very... I, th I think we couldn't take the book industry out of the whole of society. Um, I think AI will have transformed the way, the way everything happens completely within 20 years. Um, as creatives, I think we, we are in a better... That's a standard line to trot out. We're in a better position than most to get ahead of the curve by thinking what we can do next. Um, our stories will still be, there will still be valuable because people will still value an authenticity, I think, of knowing that they are connecting with someone who has the same experiences and emotions as they do. And to the extent that they value that, they will still value what writers have to say. Um, when it comes to shoe, driving out plot, though, I, I don't think, I don't think there'll be anything that we can do in that. And um, I think publishers why would they want to give us a cut of something they can do with AI perfectly happily that everyone's very happy that's come from AI because it's just as good as what we do. Um, so I, I think as creators, we ought already to be thinking um, beyond the 10-year horizon. And I think that that's one thing that frustrates me a bit about the indie world is everyone is very short-term focused. Um, I think we're better than the publishing industry. We've talked about how um, Type and Tell shut down after six months, which is really, really short. Term, but I still think we we aren't thinking. We talk about long tails and we talk about how the books will stay on the shelves forever, um, but we're not really thinking about what we as writers will be doing in 20 years' time, um, and I think we should be, um, because we need to start now, and if we start now, then there's at least a chance we might still be ahead of some kind of curve. And when you speak about starting now, um, what do you think, what form do you think that should take? Um looking for other ways of building money of building of building a living looking for other ways of building creative content looking for more and again it's a, it's a bit of a trope but looking for more offline content building um so things that connecting directly with audiences for example um i'm quite lucky i'm a performance poet as well as a novelist and that goes down really well um but this kind of experience that you can't get from AI, audience in interactivity is, is, and people love it and people will increasingly love it because as you become more and more immersed online, you will more and more seek out offline experiences to counteract that. Um, so I think that's somewhat something we could be looking at, but we should also just be looking at our imaginations for the things we haven't already thought of. Um, so what technologies might emerge in the next 20 years that we could use um, how could we use 
how could we use AI to create interactive experiences for our audiences? How could we redefine what storytelling means? Um, can we redefine storytelling down to its very first principles and talk about things that give you an emotional hit or a dopamine hit? And can we deliver those in different ways um, through doing something creative that still takes you through a process? Because that's what the story is. It's a, it's a process that has various emotional waves along the way um so can we can we deliver that in some other form and i don't know what that might take but that's the sort of question we should be thinking rather than how can i produce 10 books in this series with my erotic protagonist <laughs> speaking of the um big uh technical issues um i wanted to ask you about net neutrality and you made the point hey. you made the point earlier that one can't necessarily separate things like the book publishing industry from wider impacts of yeah. developments on society as a whole. Yeah. Um, but, you know, coming from the perspective, say, of someone who is a self-published author uh, who's looking to succeed in that world, should what do you think they should do? You think they should be concerned about net neutrality? And is, is there a particular impact on being a self an independent author that you think might come from restrictions on on net neutrality we should be concerned about all kinds of technical aspects of the internet that we aren't concerned about enough um net neutrality is obviously one because it affects our ability to it might not affect our ability to access the market because we can access the market through big channels um, but it affects our ability to access the market on our terms so so it's it will effectively limit choices <laughs> Um, one of the things at the moment that we have is, is an immense choice of ways we can reach market. Um, you can reach market through a tiny self-published blog or you can reach market through Amazon. Um, and pretty much if you, if you do it right and you find the right niche, the only thing that's stopping you is, is how good your metadata are um, for your audience finding you. Um, but if you've got if you get rid of net neutrality, then there become all sorts of other things which will stop your audience finding you if you're not using the um, the highest bandwidth channels. Um, and so, yes, we can still make a living as writers. Yes, we can still do things, but we can't do things in our own way as much. Um, and that that's just one of the things we should be looking at. And other things are um, data degradation, for example, the future of and especially proprietary software and proprietary ebook titles. Um, it's something that W3C is looking at. I know with with keeping EPUB as a as a long term archive of a written record, um, but companies come and go, and so eventually Amazon will go. And when Amazon goes, every Mobi file will that will be it. If your KDP select your not only your revenue stream, but your legacy, um, the fact that you were, there was ever a hint of you being there or your words being there, that will be gone. Um, and, and we need to be thinking about these things um, and how you preserve yourself for the long term in, a, yeah, this, in this kind of environment. This has been a big issue for, um, I would say, let's say three decades at least now, began mm. in the library world um, and the world of archivists and academics, um, where I remember one particular thing, and this will partly date me, but um, libraries <laughs> began storing digital data on laser discs yeah. for these giant LP sized yeah. things. Um, and, you know, probably more or less, there was a lot of foot dragging about the digital transformation for all kinds of reasons going back, you know, with conventions that are hundreds of years old. And so a lot of libraries were finally dragged into fine, fine, will We'll, we'll do the yeah. laser discs and then the laser discs went obsolete. Um, and, you know, archivists in particular, like they're not thinking on the 10 years or 20 years timeline. They're thinking on the thousand years yeah. timeline. Um, and so this concept of data degradation and, um, you know, format preservation, I suppose, is, is a really big deal. Um, what do you think? authors should be doing or is there anything authors can do besides watch and see what you know um, people in well, charge well, of these protocols are deciding one th one thing i mean i noticed was shared on i you don't know if you know the no shelf required site 
Um, uh, yeah, I actually interviewed um, ah. Norella uh, for this podcast. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, she's, she's one of my absolute heroes. Um, but they, they had a, a thing on the just this week about the, the Internet Archive and the Open Library Project. Um, which is something we can do. We can upload our books to the Open Library Project, um, which is, it's, I mean, it's, it's not perfect, but it, it's, a, it's dedicated to making sure books are preserved. Um, and obviously Project Gutenberg is now realising that it's, it's been preserving books in formats that aren't going to last. So it's, it's starting over. So we can be campaigning to get involved in that kind of work and have our works included. Um, one of the things I have noticed in the indie community is we are so twitchy about issues of piracy and copyright that when I posted a link to this article about the Open Archive or the Open Library Project, um, the first comment I got was, was saying, why would I do that? Um, I'll never sell another book if I do that. So, so I think we, we, we have this this tendency to be so worried about our, our immediate sales that we're not concerned about our long-term legacy. And I guess as a writer, that's a choice you make as to which you are most concerned about. But for me, certainly, I, I want future generations to have my words more than I want to have some sales. Um, so I think getting involved in projects like that and, and making sure that indie voices are able to be involved in projects like that. So what is your view um, about, I mean, it's a big, it's sort of a about piracy generally, but in particular about whether or not an independent author should be concerning themselves with piracy and how they should let that affect what they do. I think it's entirely up to one of the things about being an independent author is you get to set what agenda is important to you. Um, so I would never, well, no, I, I, would, I would say I would never tell people what to think, but I, that's a lie because I often tell people what they should think about it. Um, my personal opinion is that I... I believe in complete open access. I'm very, I, I, I think that everything, the sum of human knowledge should be freely available to everyone because that's the only way we will maintain progress. Um, I think that has to go in hand, with, hand in hand with something like a universal basic income. Um, and I think that if those two things are in place, then you're not going to damage anyone's livelihood uh, by making everything available to everyone. Um, There'd also be no need for piracy if everything's open access. Um, so, so that's my personal take. Um, everyone is entitled to their own opinion. There was an interesting study that came out a couple of weeks ago that showed that piracy might actually have an effect on sales. So if sales are, are what you're interested in, I know that it's been an, a long-standing idea that piracy actually doesn't affect sales or can actually be, be positive for sales. But I say a really interesting study that was carried out, I think, on, in, in Thailand um, that showed that if you shut down enough piracy sites, you did actually see a boost in sales. Um, so that, that was really interesting. So people who are concerned about, about their bottom line, yes, probably piracy is a concern. Um, but for me, that, that's much less important than uh, having everything available in some sort of library system to everyone so that they can build on it and so that everyone can be that's what we're ultimately doing. We're not making a living. We're enriching culture. Well, that sounds very grandiose. <laughs> but that, that's what we should be doing, I think, as writers. Um, on the subject of things like piracy and copyright, and obviously um, when you talk about shutting down um, uh, piracy sites, I mean, that's obviously not the self-published author doing that. Um, that's probably a government agency or something yeah. of that kind. Or else, you know, threats of, you know, c credible threats that law enforcement will come after you if you do... X, Y, and Z. Um, and that brings us into politics. Uh, yeah. And I want to ask you about, although net neutrality also did, but um, I wanted to ask you about Brexit because people who follow copyright, I mean, that's a whole issue in itself, but specifically with respect to these questions, because people who follow, you know, the EU, um, you know, which you have to do if you're in basically many any industry really that's doing yeah. business online um you know they can have their very opinionated take on things um and it impacts everybody um what do you think brexit means for people doing business in the uk with respect to that do you think for example that 
a, a, a UK outside the EU will be less stringent or more stringent when it comes to copyright law and enforcement? I don't think the government has the first clue what it's doing about anything like that. Um, I don't think we will know. I think we'll, we will probably be more at the hands of corp bigger corporations, so I worry more about net neutrality and that kind of issue. Um, I think there uh, there is a something what I, you might call a progressive social democracy behind the EU project that means that they are always slightly suspicious of handing over power to corporations um, and they're slightly suspicious of complete free trade and I think that will go um, because I think one of the causes of friction between Britain and Europe is that Britain isn't quite isn't quite so suspicious of that kind of thing. Um, so I think that there will be more more willingness to to bargain away various things in the name of in the name of trade. Um, and I think that that authors might lose out in that. Um, I think, to be honest, though, that, that a lot of it will turn out to be pretty irrelevant in the changing landscape because one of the things that publishing still hasn't quite come to terms with is what rights mean and what territories mean in a in a digital landscape um, we're still dealing with a publishing landscape that feels like it's based on physical books crossing physical borders and I think that's a little bit of a fiction that the publishing industry is sustaining and because no one has pulled the rug out from underneath it it's able to carry on sustaining this fiction. Um, I think at some stage over the next decade, they will realise that it is a fiction and that, that that in a digital world, you just can't maintain territories in this in this way. And the whole rights industry will have to undergo a massive change. Um, and national borders and national trading blocks will become pretty much an irrelevancy that we, we have to find a way around. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more um, about that. Um, it's... Uh... It's really interesting the way these very quickly the book publishing industry became constrained by regional rights, uh, const well, constraints. And um, uh, it, it basically my argument is that um, the industry evolved to make money around the, ex yeah. the externalities of paper because it could be blocked yeah. at borders, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, I could go on, but... Um, and, you know, we now see this in policies around things like Netflix, for example. So Netflix, as I understand it, and when I last read about their position, you know, they want there to be one global Netflix. Yeah. Um, but because there are these conventions from the past that are hanging on uh, that people make money from, they make money from not, not, not the features of the latest Thor movie, but rather from this inherited legal system. Yeah, uh, that's got this web all around the world. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm with you that that should go. And it's going to be really interesting to watch as these because they're the, some powerful constituencies that do. That's how they make their money. Um, yeah. And, you know, with things like geo blocking. Yeah, know, I mean, that, that's that's been in the news recently because the, I mean, the to go back to the EU, the, the EU is just rule basically said that geo-blocking for digital products is no longer acceptable. Um, so you will have to treat certainly the EU as one, a single digital market as well as a single physical market. Um, and I, I think that can only spread. Um, yeah. I, and hope that, that, I hope it does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so um, I guess this is the interview of hard questions. Um, uh, and thank you for being so game. Um uh, my next question, I guess, would be uh, perhaps part, partly from the sublime to the ridiculous, but um, what do you think is going on with Barnes & Noble? <laughs> um, I don't know. They must, they must have got shares in a popcorn company because it feels like it just feels like every week I, there's something with Barnes & Noble that you just want to sit down and watch the disaster unfold. Um, they seem incapable of making a sensible decision. Um, 
I know, I don't know if you've interviewed Nate Hoffelder. I don't think you've interviewed Nate Hoffelder from the Digital Reader. I but haven't. he's sort of made, he's made a profession out of Barnes & Noble jibing. Um, and it, I can sort of see why. I, I, I don't know what's happening with them. I think I think they, they've reached that point where they know something's drastically wrong. So they're lurching from bad decision to bad decision in the hopes that they might come across something that works. Yeah, there was an extraordinary quotation from their CEO, I think after some probably a bad quarterly report or something like that, where he said that, oh, yeah, the reason sales are down at our company is because everybody's um, scared at home sitting on their couch watching election. <laughs> and I thought, you know, sometimes you you hear a leader say something and you're like, how on earth, who are you surrounding yourself with that you're not being corrected when you float yeah. ideas like that? And yeah, I mean, I wasn't surprised. I think it was after that, that they announced that they were abandoning Nook and, you know, not, yeah. not that that was necessarily the wrong decision, but you do certainly get a sense of, of aimlessness. Yeah. And they don't know what to do with their bookstores either. They, they opened a load of restaurants and everyone said that was the way forward. And then they suddenly realized their bookstores are too big. And they said they're closing all the restaurants. I, I, I don't know what they're doing. No, I, I, I mean, they could if, if they were if they radically reinvented themselves, maybe there's a chance they could do something really interesting. But I don't know how they would do that. Um, we don't have that. I mean, in the UK, we have Waterstones are doing really well, which is their big national chain. Um, and I, I, I don't know what Waterstones are doing that Barnes and Noble aren't. But, but they, they need to maybe come over and spend some time in our shops over here because they're, they're clearly got a lot to learn. Yeah, and um, the uh, I mean, particularly in Britain, the the bookshop plays a particular cultural role that I think it it doesn't in in many other countries. I mean, you know, people in Britain read more, not just books, but newspapers and other things as well, than in many other countries. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm glad to hear that Waterstones is is thriving. Yeah, very much. Those places. <laughs> uh, actually, on that note. Um, you wrote not too long ago about the question of whether or not tomorrow's readers will want to read books at all, whatever form they come in. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that people being born now are going to be relating to books in a similar way uh, that we do now, like people of our generation might? That's a, that's a really difficult one. Um, it's a really good question. Though. Oh, um, I think we can't, unless we go into the matrix, you can't leave the physical world completely. Um, I can't imagine that we will just plug ourselves into the wall and that will be it. Um, and as long as we're in the physical world, we will need, we will seek sensory experiences. And I think books may well be part of that um, because they are the sort of, they're, they're, they're often described as the perfect invention, the perfect machine, aren't they? Because they're so perfectly crafted and the form goes so well with the content. Um so I, I think the physical act of reading is probably so well designed that it might survive. It's sort of like the coffee cup, the, <laughs> that it's one of those perfect delivery systems. Um, what will be really interesting to see is what happens when when neural laces come in um, and when, when information uploaded becomes an option to see whether that... I think reading online and Kindles and reading on smartphones and audiobooks won't ever challenge paper books for complete supremacy but if we could just upload books um which would be sort of 20 30 years away from what i understand then the question comes can would that upload experience deliver what a, reading a book it delivers um and that i think we don't know because we don't know what it will be like at all because we don't have anything to measure it against um and it may be that that is just as rewarding an experience. And the fact that we can read so much more that way, because it'll literally be 30 seconds to have had the experience of reading a whole book. Um, and if you get, if you can get not just the content, but the sort of sense of suspense and the rhythm and the cadence of a book in that 30 seconds, then, then I think that would be very hard to compete with. Um, and I think that people working on neural laces and how how information upload will work and whether it will become narrative upload as well as just information upload, that's something really exciting that you could be working on. How you create this, what feels like a long-term experience over something that's uploaded in a matter of milliseconds. That, that's a really interesting prospect. But that's the only thing I can see challenging the book. 
Great. Well, thanks very much for that um, uh, exciting, exciting and slightly <laughs> terrifying prospect. <laughs> Um, uh, but I, I really appreciate your views on that and, and that they are um, looking out so far ahead in a way that, that is often unconventional because it's so easy to get caught up in just catching up, basically. Um, yeah, I think that's what publishing struggles with, with a lot of, because it's on the defensive and because it's, it's other than academic publishing, academic publishing is in fabulous health um, and will, as long as it keeps running, is basically a, a scam that's ripping off public and researchers it will always be in great health um but main fiction publishing and mainstream publishing i think it's so busy looking over its shoulder that it finds it very difficult to look ahead um which is maybe why tech companies are going to be where the exciting breakthroughs come yeah well let's uh let's hope there are some uh publishers listening to this who uh, do start start maybe looking forward rather than looking back um and uh let's hope um some of these developments are uh, really good for authors. I mean, you know, with, it's easy to be negative, but, you know, things have changed dramatically uh, in the indie publishing space just in the last few years. And many of those developments have been for the good in terms of getting yourself out there and yeah. changing, changing, particularly changing conventions around um, self-publishing. Yeah, and authors are creative. So, so, so no one is in a better position to, to take advantage of whatever comes along than authors are. Yes. Yes. Um, I could, I'll, again, once again, I couldn't agree more. Um, well, thank you. Thank you. I just wanted to say, I guess our time's about up, but thank you very much, uh, Dan, for taking the time to do this. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. We covered a lot of ground, um, yeah. as you did effortlessly. So thank you very much for doing Thank that. you. Um, and uh, yes, thanks again for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure.